Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this morning and for your word. I thank you for every book in your word, every word of scripture. And I pray that this morning we would understand the book of Esther, that we would see the sovereign hand that you have at work in the entire story, and that we would glorify and trust you even more because of that. It's in your name I pray. Amen. All right, well, we are right at the end of the Old Testament. If you remember, we started back in January going through the Old Testament book by book. And this week, we were talking about Esther. Next week, we'll talk about Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, and that will end the Old Testament. So it took us eight months, but we made it to the Old Testament. And then we'll immediately jump right into the New Testament and do the same thing. So we are making significant and good progress through the Old Testament. Um, and today we come to Esther. So Esther is the last historical record of the Old Testament because Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are prophecy. And there's some historical data in there, but this is really the last historical book. Um, and so it's placed at the end of the historical section in Scripture. Canonically, it comes after First and Second Chronicles, then Ezra and Nehemiah, then you get Esther. So if you're looking for it, um, it's before Job, before Psalms, before all of that wisdom literature. Um, and as it falls uh, canonically after Ezra and Nehemiah, it also chronologically falls in that same time period. Esther, Esther most likely occurs between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7. Ezra 6, where the temple is completed, and then Ezra 7, when Ezra, return, Ezra comes to Israel, leads even more Jews back to Israel, uh, the book of Esther is not occurring in Israel, but in Persia between those two chapters, between those two events. So by this point, um, we're at about 475 B.C., which places this about 100 years after the last of the three exiles to Babylon. So those exiles were at the beginning, I think it was 605, 597, and 586 were the Babylonian exiles. And then while Israel was in exile, the, the Babylonian empire was conquered by Persia. That occurs during the, the narrative uh, timeline of Daniel. And so now we're about 100 years after that exile, and we're about 50 years after Zerubbabel has led the first Jews back to Israel. We're in the story of Esther kind of references the entire empire of Persia, which it says goes from India to Ethiopia. So we're going from Central Asia through the Middle East and possibly up into Europe partially, and then down into Africa all the way to Ethiopia. So this is the major, massive superpower in the world. And the story takes place in the capital city of Susa, which... If Israel is kind of central, I'm going, to, I'm going to do this map for you guys, and then Babylon is probably here, Susa is even further away from Israel, the capital of the Persian Empire. Uh, we don't know who the author of the book is, but we do know that it is a Jewish eyewitness to these events, and we know that because there are very detailed descriptions given of the palace and of the events that were there. And so we, a lot of people think that it was Mordecai, who um, is a character in the story and may have written this down. That's possible. We don't know. I personally think that Ezra is the author of this book. I think that Ezra wrote like the Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah. I think he may have compiled the Psalms. I think he had a big hand in the Old Testament. But I can't say that for sure. That's just, we know that it was someone who was there. 
at the time who saw these events and who was familiar with Persian culture. Because there's things in here that you wouldn't just, that I, I as an American wouldn't know. Someone has, who had to be there and understand the Persian culture. So we don't know the author for sure, but what we do know is that the book of Esther is here so we can learn about God's providence. So we can learn about God's sovereignty. And Esther is written to the returned exiles, and it would have emphasized that God's plan that he had for them was still intact. God's plan for them was still intact. If you remember from last week, Carrie taught us that Ezra and Nehemiah communicate that God keeps his promises and he accomplishes his plan. And so God has already kept his promises that he made in Deuteronomy 28, that he was going to send the nation of Israel into exile if they continued in their sin. They already know he's been faithful to that promise. And Ezra and Nehemiah show that he's also faithful to the promise of Deuteronomy 30, where he said, after all these things happen, you go into exile, I will bring you back. So they already have this record of God keeping his promises, and the book of Esther complements Ezra and Nehemiah by focusing on God's complete sovereignty over everything in the universe, from the highest power in the world, now to tiny, insignificant quote-unquote, details. Esther shows us that God is completely sovereign over everything in the world. Now, Esther is a a really beloved and well-known book in the Old Testament. It's one that I think even outside the church, maybe the world at large knows. Um, It's one of the only two books in the Bible that are titled for a woman, so it's popular in women's studies. And Esther is a popular person to emulate and kind of hold up as a hero. Um, and you know when VeggieTales makes an episode about a biblical story, that that, that, one, that story has made it. And even Hollywood has made multiple movies of the story of Esther. But I hate to break it to you, the, the book was better than the movie. The book is better than the movie. Because even though Esther is a really well-known story, I think the emphasis gets placed too much on the characters and not enough on God, who the story is really about. And this is really the case in Jewish communities, because Jewish communities love the book of Esther, and they celebrate the festival of Purim, which is established and inaugurated in Esther each year. And the festival of Purim is kind of like um, carnival or Mardi Gras without the immorality and the alcohol. But if you think of just the wildness, the craziness of those festivals, that's kind of what Purim is like. And so the Jewish people will dress up in costume, usually Esther, Mordecai, Haman, they'll dress up in these wild costumes and they will read the entire story of Esther. And whenever the name Haman is mentioned, everyone will make tons of noise. They have these noisemakers, they boo and they hiss and they drown out his name so that he can't even be heard because they hate him so much. And they cheer when Mordecai and Esther are mentioned. So there's kind of a, there's kind of a hero worship in this festival about these characters because this is such a significant moment in their history that this person tried to wipe out the entire Jewish race, and Mordecai and Esther were the heroes and saved the day. So we're not going to do that today, because we're not celebrating Purim. But I do want to make this interactive. We're going to do something that I think will get your attention, but emphasize the right hero in the story. Because what we're going to see is that the actions of Esther and Mordecai Their actions are kind of morally ambiguous at best. There's some things where we say, okay, I think they're trusting God here. But for the most part, they're morally ambiguous at best, or they're sinful at worst. 
And I don't think they're presented as the perfect heroes of the story, kind of the way that Daniel or Joseph is. In fact, Daniel and his friends in, in Babylon are kind of foils for how Esther and Mordecai behave in captivity. We'll see that. And, and Haman, he's, he's a legitimate antagonist, right? He's legitimately the bad guy. But God isn't just concerned with defeating Haman. God is concerned with showing his sovereignty over everything. The, the, Satan working behind the scenes, all of these little details, even the king of Persia. He's concerned with more than just Haman. And I, I've been, you, you can see that God is the hero of the story of Esther, but it's interesting that the name God is not mentioned in the entire book. God is not mentioned in the entire book of Esther. So how can we say that he's the hero? Well, even though God isn't mentioned as doing anything explicitly, every single thing that happens seems to have the fingerprints of God on it. It, It's impossible to read this book and say that God is not involved. Because as we read the book, there are a ridiculous amount of coincidences. Where it seems like, oh, it just so happens. It just so happened. And so what we're going to do today is that whenever I say the phrase, it just so happened, you guys are all going to respond, it happened just so. Because when we read the book, our minds say, man, that's a coincidence. It just so happened. But what we really need to see is that God is intentionally, actively writing this story. It's not a coincidence. It's not out of his control. He is directing it. So let's go ahead and practice this. So it just so happened... Okay, good. We'll see, when I edit this later, we'll see if you guys are loud enough to show up on the recording. Otherwise, anyone who's listening to this will just have to say it when they're listening to it themselves. Um, And I can't take credit for this exercise. When I was at school, a pastor came and did a a one-sermon overview of the book of Esther and had us do this exact same thing. And it stuck in my mind for six years that almost, not even just with Esther, but anytime I hear the phrase, it happened, or it just so happened, um... I I say in my head, no, it happened just so. And that's helped me think about God's sovereignty and his role in the world. So from here on out, anytime I say that phrase, I'm going to wait and you guys respond, it happened just so. Okay, so if you're not open there already, go ahead and open up to the book of Esther and we'll get into the story. So it starts out with the most powerful man in the world, which is Ahasuerus, the king of Persia. And he holds this crazy feast that lasts for six months. It's basically a celebration of the power and greatness of the king. He's just having this giant feast about himself. And it's a great opportunity to get stupid drunk. That's one of the themes you see through Esther. There is an insane amount of drinking. And I don't don't think it's wrong to see that the king and Haman, and maybe even other characters in the story, are constantly in a state of stupor. They're constantly drinking, and that's going to affect their actions. Um, And so this banquet is a really good introduction to the character of the king because he sees himself as high and mighty and as the greatest king in the world, and he's also very foolish as he's constantly inebriated. And in the midst of his drunkenness, it just so happens that he decides to call in his wife Vashti to show her off. And it's not explicit in the text, but it's possible that he's calling her in to show her off inappropriately. We're not sure, but it seems like that could be implied. Either way, it just so happens, the Vashti is fed up with her husband, and she says, no, I'm not coming in. She just picked this one moment to stand up to her husband. And so the king gets mad. He checks with his trusted advisors, and they say, you need to establish authority. 
You need to establish authority. Now, at this point, he's, he's talking to his seven prime ministers of the entire nation, his council. And he, they're probably all drunk. And so in their drunkenness, they decide, you know what, let's take a stand too. And not just Vashti, we're going to exile her. You're going to send something out to the entire kingdom that men need to put their foot down and be the man of the house and do the same thing. It's a good thing that Twitter wasn't around, because I can't imagine the backlash to that kind of announcement now. Well, when Ahasuerus wakes up from his drunkenness, he realizes what he's done, and he's really bummed out. He's like, I, I kind of liked Vashti. Well, what was I doing? And so he does what only the most powerful man in the world can do. He gets all the most beautiful virgins in the entire world to have a beauty contest so he can pick a new woman, pick a new queen. Now, it just so happens, that there's a Jewish man named Mordecai living in Susa, the capital city. And it just so happened that Mordecai had been raising his relative, Esther. Her parents had died, and she was living with him. And Esther 2.7 describes that she had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. So the king's servants didn't have to go far in the capital city to find a very promising young woman to bring in for the king. Now here's where we get our first glimpse of Mordecai and Esther's character. Because Esther goes in and undergoes six months of beauty treatments, and chapter 2, verse 9, specifically mentions that she had her daily allotment of food. Now, this is not the first mention of Jews eating food in exile. The, the first mention is with Daniel and his friends. And you remember their story, the food actually became kind of the center point of the story. Because they refused to eat the food served at the king's table, very similar to Esther, because it would have gone against their dietary restrictions as Jews. And in their refusal, God used their obedience to the law to elevate them, to bless them, and he honored their obedience. We see Esther making a different choice here. Now, the text doesn't make a big deal about it. It doesn't say, yeah, she actively did this in disobedience. But I think it's interesting that in one place where Jews were obedient to the law, God honored that, and yet here, we don't see her making that same type of choice. I think that's interesting. And throughout the book, there are several banquets that she will throw for the king and for Haman. And you could assume the same food is served there. And in addition, at those banquets, Haman and the king are getting very drunk and inebriated. And it would only make sense, if she's partaking in the same things, that she likely partook of that wine as well. So it seems like Esther doesn't necessarily have the same view of following God's commands that Daniel and his friends did. But in addition to the six months of these beauty treatments, at the end, Esther is called in for a night with the king. And when I was a kid, I, I imagined, this is just how I understood the story in my worldview, that the king would be sitting up at his throne, and when it would be Esther's turn, she would come in and kind of you know, walk like the stage before the king. And then maybe they would sit down and have a conversation, get to know each other, because he's trying to find a wife, right? And then she would leave, and if he wanted her back, he would just call her back. That's not what happened. That's not what happened in the story. Um, the virgins are brought in for a night with the king, not so they could get to know him, but so that he could have his way with them. And again, it's, this is a violation of the law as well. This is not something that Jewish women would have been allowed to do under the law, and yet she goes through with it. Now, you may say, well, cut her some slack. Wouldn't the king kill her if she refused to do this? Well, yeah, that's possible. But she does do something later in the book that, would have, that could have gotten her killed, and she went through with that. And again, look back in the story of Daniel with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
They literally were put to death as much as the king could in that fiery furnace, and God preserved them. So we, we see kind of a difference in how Esther interacts with obeying the law in captivity. And that's why I say, I don't know if she's really the hero of this story. I think these may be written for us to learn from, but she's not necessarily the hero that we're meant to emulate. But her character issues may not have just started with her. They may have come from Mordecai, who raised her. Because in chapter 2, verse 10, it says she went to the palace, and Mordecai told her not to tell anyone that she was a Jew. And he did this to preserve her life. Because as the book will show, Persia is not really friendly to Jews at this point. But again, in Babylon, they weren't either. In Babylon, they weren't either. And yet Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had no problem living out their faith, going into the throne room and talking to the king about God. And God uses that. God honored their obedience to the law. But even though the characters in the book of Esther are not perfect, God is showing himself sovereign. Because just like in the story of Joseph... Esther and Mordecai have sinful purposes for their actions, or at least they don't have good purposes for their actions, even if they're neutral. But God is using them, and not just using them, but actually intending them for good. Remember, Joseph said to his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. Not just I used it, and I I turned it, and I kind of redirected it, but I was actually working behind the scenes through this and actively purposing this for good. That's what we see God doing in the story of Esther. So after Esther spent her night with the king, it just so happened. It happened just so. That was your best one yet. It just so happened that he finds great favor in her. And it gets even better because it just so happened that Mordecai overheard a plot to kill the king. And now that Esther was elevated to the place of the queen, because she's found this favor with, with uh, Ahasuerus, Mordecai gets this information to her, and she is able to tell the appropriate people, and the king's life is saved. These people are put to death, and the king escapes the plot. And the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 are really interesting, and they contain a great deal of foreshadowing for the rest of the story. So read starting in verse 23 of chapter 2. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, this is the plot that Mordecai overheard, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So these perpetrators were sent to the gallows, which is not like Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, noose where you're hanging pirates. It was a large stake with a point at the end that these people would be impaled on. And... So the people are impaled, and then it just so happened that Mordecai's deed of foiling this assassination plot is recorded in the history of the king. And you would expect that he would be honored for that, but in the very next verse after it's recorded, it says that who is honored? Haman. Haman is honored instead of Mordecai. And when we come to Haman, it just so happened that Haman is an Edomite, an enemy of Israel, and a descendant of Esau. He's not Persian. He's not a Persian who's elevated to this high place of authority. He's a Canaanite and a descendant of Esau, who is this enemy of the Jews and is now in charge. And Haman gets elevated to the position that the Council of Seven held. So that that role that they had in the first chapter, now Haman has uh, solely. He just has it by himself. 
So he is the sole prime minister in the largest nation in the world. He's the second most powerful man in the world. And so as he walked around the city, as he went from his home to the palace, everyone in the capital city bowed down and paid him respect. And it just so happened that his normal route took him directly by the gate where Mordecai sat. And Mordecai didn't bow down to him. Now here, here is where we see this is potentially Mordecai obeying the law and saying, no, I'm, I'm a Jew, I'm not going to bow down to him. It says in, in chapter 3, verse 4, that Mordecai explained why he wasn't bowing because he was a Jew. But it doesn't necessarily say he's doing that because he won't bow down to any man. Um, so this is where we can't even say for sure that this is a positive action. It's neutral at best. But I don't, I don't want to read too much into the text and try to demonize Mordecai. This, this could be his actually obe- obeying the law. So Haman gets mad. Because as the second most powerful man in the world, he is not used to being snubbed. And man, did he get his feelings hurt. One guy doesn't bow down to you and you lose your mind. Again, Haman is in a constant state of inebriation in this story. So that may have had something to do with it. But Haman gets the king to sign off on a plan to wipe out the entire Jewish race. Like I said, he really got mad. And he seems just as easily offended as the king who sent his queen away after that one Uh, time that she snubbed him. And Haman gets the king to sign off on this plan by offering to pay him 10,000 talents of silver, which is the modern equivalent to almost a million dollars. So the king is is all for this plan, not because he hates the Jews, but because he's making bank. He's making bank. And so they cast pur, which is the Hebrew word for lots. They cast lots to find the day for when this is going to occur. And they determine the day, and they say, on this day, anyone in the, in the entire world can go murder and pillage Jews and take all their stuff. And I, I have not seen these movies, so I'm not recommending them. But when I hear this, I think of the movie The Purge, which I think the premise of is that for one night, all of the laws are um, suspended, and anyone can do whatever they want. So I think of this as kind of a, an ancient Jewish purge night, which would be awful. And so the king and Haman make their arrangements, and then chapter 3, verse 15 says, they sat down to drink. And it says the rest of the the city was thrown into confusion, and Haman and the king, the most powerful men in the world, who just caused all this confusion, are just having a party. That's what these powerful men are doing. And that abuse of power is starkly contrasted with God's sovereign power. Because while all this is going on, it just so happened happened that the queen is a Jew. And the king doesn't know this, that he's just condemned his his queen to death. And so Mordecai learns of the plot and tells Esther that she needs to do something. She needs to talk to the king. But that's easier said than done, because no one else could enter the throne room unbidden. Now again, I imagine this as a kid, just the king was just sitting up in this throne, alone in this giant room, bigger than this. And he would get mad if someone opened the door and came in. But that's not what's going on. The reason that no one could come in unbidden is because there were these guards at the door, and if they were trying to protect the king's life. So if someone tried to come in unbidden, they would kill them. So Esther was really taking her life into her hands. And remember, uh, the king is not, not someone that you want to mess with or snub, even insignificantly. So she was legitimately fearful for her life. But Mordecai makes a statement that reflects the theme of the entire book. 
And whether he's making this with full confidence in this statement or just kind of throwing his hands up and saying, well, let's, let's throw it to chance. Like this is, maybe this is what's going on. We're not sure if he's totally behind this statement. But it, the truth of the statement goes beyond, beyond what he was saying. And it really summarizes the entire book. And this is in chapter 4, verse 14. He says, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And it almost sounds like Mordecai is saying it just so happened. But we really know that. It just so. Right. See, God had put Esther there for this exact moment. Not because she was anything special. Not because she was extra obedient to the law. If anything, she's a disobedient Jew. But God had put her there to accomplish his exact purpose and glorify his name. So Esther decides that if she's going to die anyway in the purge, she might as well risk death by approaching the king. And so she goes in, and it just so happens that the king finds favor with her, and that's her live. And so she finds favor in his sight. He asks her what she wants. And Esther says she wants to invite the king and Haman to a banquet that she's going to throw. And you guessed it, at this banquet, wine abounds. And so then at this banquet with the king and the Haman and Esther, the king asks her what she really wants because he knows uh, this is, this is, you're kind of building up to something. What do you really want? And she advised them both to another banquet. She's kind of stringing them along. Well, after this first banquet, as Haman is drunkenly making his way home, it just so happened that he passed by Mordecai again. And because Mordecai doesn't bow, he gets incredibly angry. And he goes home with his wounded ego, and he complains to his wife about it. He complains how he just can't wait until that day happens so he can kill Mordecai. And so his wife suggests, hmm, maybe we could do something different about this. Let's build this 80-foot-high gallows, which is way higher than it needs to be. So we're going way beyond actual usage. It's so high because this is reflecting Haman's ego of himself. He's trying to show up Mordecai, not just by killing him, but by humiliating him. And so Haman sets the plan in motion, and then he makes plans to go ask the king for permission. Uh, he thinks it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. But in this case, he's going to be deathly wrong. It's not better to ask forgiveness than permission. Well, the same night, it just so happened that the king couldn't sleep. He had drunk a lot, so he should have been able to fall asleep. He'd done everything within his power to fall asleep. But it just so happened that he could not. So he asks for the history of the kingdom to be read to him. And if you think about it, he's asking for the history of everything that has ever happened to him. So what do you do when you need a bedtime story and you can't sleep? I want to hear about me. I want to hear about me. And as, as they're reading all the things that he has done, it just so happened that he heard the story of Mordecai foiling that assassination plot. And the king realized he had never rewarded Mordecai for his deed. But here's where it gets crazy, because it just so happened that at that exact moment, Haman had literally just come into the palace. And so, and he's coming in to ask uh, the king about these gallows that he's building for Mordecai. And so the king calls him in, and he asks him, what should be done for someone who truly pleases him? And Haman, in his arrogance, and probably again in his drunkenness, thinks that the king is talking about him. So he tells the king to dress this person up in the king's own robes and in his crown and put him on the king's horse and have the most powerful man he can think of go before him and lead him through the city saying, this 
Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So he came up with exactly what he wanted the king to do for him. And then the king tells him to go do it to Mordecai. And I think that would have sobered Haman up. So this enemy of the Jews, who was literally at that moment having an 80-foot stake constructed to kill Mordecai, was forced to honor Mordecai in front of the entire city. And that's God's providence at work. And even though we can, I think we can poke fun at Haman for being too easily offended before, this would legitimately be embarrassing. This would have brought incredible shame to Haman. And at the end of chapter 6, as he comes home and he's getting mad with his family, he's embarrassed again, even his friends and his wife, they start to see the truth in this, and they say, I think you might be in trouble. If you look in Esther 6.13, it says, Then his wise men and his wife Zerah said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him. Oh, surely fall before him. But then it just so happened that at that moment, the king's servants came to get Haman for the second banquet. And so Haman, embarrassed and angry and, and probably fearful, because he's starting to see that he's not as in power as he thought he was, he goes to have another feast with the king and his Jewish queen, although still unbeknownst to him. And this time at the banquet, Esther tells them that she is a Jew and that Haman, although he doesn't know it, is trying to kill her. So the king is now furious, and he's faced with the choice of his queen, whom he really likes, and his right-hand man, whom he also really likes, and who is paying him a large sum of money to wipe out the Jews. And of course, he's drunk. So he goes off in the garden to think it through, and in the meantime, Haman starts begging Esther for mercy. And as he did so, he got onto the couch where Esther is reclining for the meal, and it just so happened... That as he found himself in a compromising permission, guess who should come back but the king? And this is the final straw, and the king loses his mind. And it just so happened that as the guards were locking Haman up, one of the king's servants mentioned the gallows that Haman was building. And this is the first time that the king has heard about this. And so in perfect irony, the king orders Haman himself to be impaled on the stake. Wow, what a whirlwind of seemingly coincidental events. That's why we say God is not mentioned in the story, but he is all over it. It's impossible to read the story of Esther and say these are all coincidences. And you guys are probably exhausted. This is the most you guys have ever talked on a Sunday morning. <laughs> well, it's a good thing that the story is over. Wrong. There's still three chapters left. There's still three chapters left in the story of Esther. And while these chapters don't contain coincidence after coincidence, they do reinforce God's sovereign hand over everything. See, first of all, Mordecai gets elevated to the place of Haman. So the man who hated Mordecai was replaced by Mordecai. There's God's sense of humor as well as his sovereign hand showing that he's the most powerful being in the universe and that Haman is not. And he shows this even further because when Esther begs for the king to reverse his edict, he says, uh, I actually can't. Uh, I'm bound by this higher law in Persia. So God humbles the second most powerful man in the world and replaces him with a Jew. And then God says, hey, you know, king, who's actually the most powerful, guess what? You're not. Because you can't do this, can you? But guess what? I can. And so they find the way around this. They find a way to reverse the edict, not by canceling it, because the king can't, 
but by sending out another decree, similar to Haman's, that the Jews can defend themselves. And here's where it gets interesting. Here's where it gets interesting. Because look at Esther 8, verse 11, to see what the decree specified. It says, The king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. So that sounds even more like purge night. And basically, anything goes. And on the day where, on the day specified, the Jews are victorious. Chapter 9, verse 1 says this. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. And so chapter 9 describes how these bands of Jews got together to defend themselves. And the government in all these places even sided with them because they realized that that's where the king's allegiance lied. But it's unclear, it's unclear whether the Jews actually just acted in defense. It's never mentioned that these bands of non-Jews were coming and trying to pillage the Jews. All that we're told is that the Jews murdered and pillaged their enemies and those who hated them. So even as we read this part, there's kind of a question about whether the Jews are actually acting in defense or if they're acting in massive vengeance and hatred for their own enemies. And so after the first day is done, the Jews have killed 500 people, and then Esther requests that they get another day to do it. And again, it's not mentioned that they're saying, hey, people are still attacking us. Can we have another day to defend ourselves? It's just saying, hey, we need, we need another day to do this. So the king grants that to them. They go out and do it again. And the king, by the way, is cool with all of this because as they're murdering and pillaging, it mentions a couple times they don't take any of the spoils. And I think it's implicit there that the king is getting these spoils, not the Jews. So the king, just like with Haman, he's totally fine with this because he's making bank. And so all throughout the kingdom, it mentions that the Jews killed 75,000 people in two days. That's, that's close to the population of Lawrence. That's, that's a full Arrowhead Stadium. And it's still not clear whether that's something that they should have done. Because it's not like the rest of the Old Testament where this is a, a sanctioned war by God. God's not mentioned anywhere saying, yes, go do this. And, and throughout the Old Testament, we read a lot that is descriptive about the history of Israel, and it's not necessarily prescriptive. We, we read about things that they did, but we're not told to act that they were supposed to do them. And I don't want to read too much into the story of Esther, and again, I don't want to demonize everything that they did, because it's, it's really not clear. Um, it does record these events, it records them setting up Purim, um, and it, it says that they're very religious about observing Purim, but that's, it's, again, nowhere sanctioned by God. It's not like the Mosaic Law where all these festivals were said many, many, many times you need to keep this and observe it. So I think we should be careful as we look at this and just accept everything that they did as holy and righteous and good. But even so, even so, the last couple chapters indicate that God frustrates the plans of Haman and shows his sovereignty over him. God humbles Ahasuerus by showing him that he's nothing but a a powerless, drunken man. And only God has ultimate authority. So God shows his sovereignty by protecting and preserving his people, exactly as he said, 
even if he does through, through the disobedience of his people. And God shows his sovereignty even as Esther and Mordecai make questionable choices. So Esther's about God's sovereignty. If we didn't have Esther, we would miss an incredibly detailed, incredibly powerful story about his sovereignty. We would miss a reminder to trust God even in the midst of trying and difficult circumstances. Because remember, Esther shows us that God is in control even over the most powerful people in the world. I think we can take that to heart because there are powerful people that all throughout the world, whether politically or religiously, economically, that we look at and say, oh, I really wish where you weren't in power. We can look, read the story of Esther and say, God is still in control over them. But then the story of Esther also shows us that God is in control over these little, seemingly inconsequential details. And we can all resonate with that, with the five minutes extra, taking, taking five extra minutes in the morning to get ready, or hitting every red light. Those little details, God is still in control over those. So there's a lot of application we can make from the message of Esther. And I just want to give three kind of big points of application that we can see here. So first, we need to trust that God is in control in the direst of circumstances. God is in control in the direst of circumstances. Because Esther tells the story of a time when the entire Jewish population in the world looked like they were going to be wiped out. It's not just that there was a chance of it. It looked like that was what was going to happen. And God orchestrated the events that instead of that happening, instead a Jewish man became the second most powerful man in the world, and a Jewish woman became the queen of the empire. So God is in control even in the direst circumstances. We need to believe that, that about God now so that when we are in those dire circumstances, we have something to hold on to. And that's what we all have been leaning on these last couple weeks as we mourn the passing of Jayon. This is a dire circumstance for us, but even as this is going on, we can trust that God is still in control. And that all these events, he's using and orchestrating and purposing for his glory and for our good. So that's the first piece. The second piece of application is that Esther teaches us that we need to humble ourselves before God. Haman and Ahasuerus have ridiculously high views of themselves. And they evidence an extreme amount of pride and arrogance and idolatry of themselves. And God clearly humbles each of them and elevates two Jews for no reason of their own character, as we've seen, just for his own good purposes. But more than just elevating Esther and Mordecai, God shows that he himself is the only one who has, is kind of all put together in the story. He's the only one who has control over what's going on. And we need to learn from that. We should evaluate ourselves for pride and illusions of grandeur and realize that God is the only one who is worthy of praise. And then lastly, we need to view our circumstances as an opportunity to trust God's sovereignty. View our circumstances as an opportunity to trust God's sovereignty. So when things happen in your life that you don't like or want, learn from the story of Esther that God is in control of those events and he's using them for a purpose. So when you can't sleep at night, don't get angry. Instead, trust God that he has a purpose for it. Maybe he's keeping you up so that you can pray. Maybe he's keeping you awake so that when your basement floods at 2 in the morning, you can hear it. Or maybe like Otto this week, he wakes you up early in the morning for no reason for that exact same purpose. Or maybe you never find out why you had to stay up and sleep, or, and you couldn't sleep. But even in that moment where you don't understand it at the time, use that as an opportunity to trust God's purposes. 
What we learn from Esther is that we need to view our circumstances, the good and the bad, as opportunities to trust God's sovereignty. And we need to always remember that nothing in our lives just so happened. There you go. All right, you guys are dismissed.